Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, my guest is author Terry Lovelace, who wrote the books Incident at Devil's Den and Devil's Den 2, The Reckoning. These books are autobiographical accounts of his life. And honestly, they're really good. His first book, I read in one sitting between 9 p.m. and 5.30 a.m. And what happened was... uh, I read it over the course of a night and then I completely crashed and went to sleep. I woke up around noon and I wrote him an email and I said, Terry, I've never, I never, I never like read books in one sitting. Your book blew me away. I was hooked. The problem is my whole body crashed, like reading this book all night in one sitting when I wasn't prepared to totally fucked up my body. So what I'd like to do is read your second one and I want to take my time reading your second one. And then when I'm done, I'd like to do a podcast where we discuss both of the books. And he wrote me back almost immediately, and he's like, thank you for your your email. It made my day. Uh, I'd love to talk. And so this is the conversation that we just had earlier today. Um, If you haven't figured out, I record all of my intros after the fact, so I know what we talked about. Today is February 5th, 2022. We talked for two straight hours, 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. New York time, and one of my favorite conversations and also one of the most important subject matters of the 21st century. And for those of you listening on audio, I should let you know that there are images that Terry has sent me, which I'm going to feature in the video versions of this episode. You can get to the video version for free on YouTube and on Spotify. I don't know if the Spotify one is free to be totally honest, because I don't really I just don't know. I just know that I upload them and they're available wherever they're available because of the RSS feed. But with with the Spotify video, there's only one other episode at this point that has video, and that's the Lindell Descant episode. Um, So this is going to be another episode where you'll see two pop in. The first one will be the video version, and that'll also be transcoded to audio but I don't like the quality of the audio transcode. So you'll see a second version. And that second version is the normal audio version of the podcast. And so if you're just listening on audio, that's the one you should listen to is the the later one. However, I do recommend that you check out the video version if you're interested in Terry's x-rays and in some of the photographic evidence that he provides. There will also be sketches from the book made available in the episode. So with that said, If you're interested in the subject matter that we discuss, if you want to learn more, I highly recommend that you connect with Terry on Facebook, follow his page, and also shoot him an email. If you have your own experiences, shoot him an email. Uh, He's a great guy to get in touch with if you want help in understanding your own experiences. Uh, And if you don't know what I mean by that by this point, uh, Terry Lovelace is an experiencer in terms of UFOs and alien contact. His, both of his books are autobiographical, and they focus on the, aspect of, the aspects of his life uh, that have to do with all that. And they are absolutely fascinating. He backs as much of it up with evidence as he can, and when he can't, he goes into many, many, many details, which are very, very convincing. And so with all that said, please welcome my guest, Terry Lovelace, and enjoy our conversation. Thank you.
freezing and we were snowing last night and for some reason I woke up this morning and there was just like a bunch of red-breasted robins outside on the fire escape in freezing temperatures and I'm like what is going on here I've never seen them in February huh waiting for a crust of bread maybe (laughs) maybe I, I usually don't put seeds out till May um but yeah, that was weird. It was a weird night. Where where are you at? I'm in uh, Staten Island. Okay. So yeah, like right in the North Shore. So uh, loved your books. Oh, I, uh, I loved both of them, and and I had to talk to you. Well, I loved your guest list. I, I want to talk to everybody uh, for the most part. I'm interested in everybody's experiences and and how they go about understanding reality. I guess. Um. I'm also like a really creative person. I write a lot of stories and I, and I make films and I, I find that a lot of my work is better informed the more people I talk to. Like it doesn't make sense for me to not uh, embrace what other people are going through or, or what they're learning. So, you know, I've had on, I've had on that guy who was running the, uh, the investigations over at Skinwalker Ranch, but I've also had on uh, the complete opposite, where uh, this guy from Harvard, who maybe that's not his speed, but he's still interested in UAPs, but he's taking a completely different approach and studying them. Uh, and then I'll have on authors who have no connection to any of this subject matter whatsoever, because uh, it all it all matters to me. Yeah, well, I, th- I think there's a thread of commonality that runs through all this stuff. I don't care if it's Bigfoot or or UFO. There's there's uh something going on yeah well i mean we're definitely not seeing reality proper you know what i'm saying like we're seeing a very small percentage of reality yes so yep well like what is it like four percent or six percent something that we see the rest is uh, dark matter dark energy and we have no clue what it is or Sorry. what's inside it zoom is being annoying um okay yeah, I uh, and and until we like really know what dark matter is or dark energy truly is, because I, I feel like dark matter is really just a stand-in for something that we have no idea what it is. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Um, until we 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 can know what that is, what those forces are, uh, we won't be really that close to understanding any of it. But I was thinking, so I have my bullet points, but. Uh, because I wanted to unpack some things in your books, but I, I, I feel like we maybe we should give my listeners uh, the sort of overarching story of your life. Um, I, I love I, I'd love to start with, if it's okay with you, the childhood materials. Sure. And then we can go into uh, your time in the Air Force. Yes, because I had um, an eleven-year hiatus there where nothing happened, and then twenty, you know, nineteen seventy-seven when I was twenty-two. That's when uh, Devil's Den occurred, and then uh, yeah, and then how you rediscovered it with the X-rays, and then we can go on from from there. Uh, so, but I I I become obsessed to a certain extent with this idea that experiencers once they start looking into it realize well, this has been with me since you know I was a toddler or whatever. Uh, and I and I see that again and again and again. I see that in all the John the John Mack 
books and in the the Hopkins books, uh, everybody who thought that they were they were free of it, and then that they had that one sighting, they regress, and suddenly they realize, oh wait a minute, no 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 no, this yeah. has been with it's me part for of my life, life man. It, it is just a normal part of my life. Yeah. I don't think I'd change a thing if I had the opportunity. Oh, that's interesting. Um, well, we'll go into why why that is later. Let's start with. Um, you had a poem in your in your book that you wrote in school. I, uh, by the way, this was a very good poem. I'd love to uh, read that. If, uh, we have time for that. Well, let's start with it for for yeah. grinning monkeys because. Uh, you know, I still. I'm get, a poetry guy. <laughs> I still get emotional when I read that. I've I've not read a high schooler's like like for a high schooler. You were in high school, right? Yes, senior year. Writing in high something of this caliber in high school, I've never seen that before. Even with a lot of the literary people I was surrounded by. I was, you know, I was a good wordsmith. I mean, I, math, <laughs> I can't, I can't solve for X, but uh, I've, o I've always been good with words. Shadows from the hallway crept into my room, long the monkey men too, I assume. Never before in life had I seen a creature that grinned before I could scream. A candle's flame dances before it grows dim when monkey man's shadow has slowly crept in on his knees and with ease, he is perched on the edge of my bed, if you please. The silence was broken one inch from my ear as the monkey man whispered, my boy, I'm right here. Now monkeys were four and were masked to deceive children or even grown men, if you please. I started to tremble and covered my head, but monkeys all four crept close to my bed. Outside of my covers, four peeled with delight. These monkey men here, will they take me this night? Faces with grins approach to say, Terry, won't you come with us and play? Come with us now, give us your hand, and we'll take you to an unbelievable land. You may not remember the last time or when, but come with us now and you'll see it again. But I said, I know you are not what you seem. And if you are real, then why can't I scream? This night, the monkey men take me with ease, and I'm but a terrified child, if you please. These things are not men that are born of this earth. Near a star to the west is the place of their birth. It matters not what I do or say. Tonight, like the others, they'll take me away. Where shall we go? How long must I stay? Tell me, you four. Tell me now, I do pray. We're going home, Terry. There's no reason for gloom. See that star over there, just east of your moon? We traverse great distance, pick you up, and we're gone to return you to bed before breaks the dawn. We must take from you blood and things we do need. Many entities one day will be born of your seed. When I'm taken away, can my mom hear my calls across all of space, through brick and through walls? Will she think that I'm lost or seized from my bed? Will she worry I suffer or fear I am dead? She'll cry and sob while we go and play if I don't return before dawn breaks the day. And when I return, will I come back whole? 
our most sinister deeds take some terrible toll. We'll soon arrive at the place we do dwell. You'll see it is neither a heaven nor hell. A place with two suns lights our day, a place that is different, but also the same. The years have passed quickly as life slips my grasp. Pray me, pray, pray tell me why did you hurt me, I ask. From earth you take away women and men to tag us and track us toward what an end. We are sentient beings that feel self-aware, but you are just monkeys and monkeys don't care. As a child, I had no voice to say what may come to pass on some future day. I had the need and right to know what was done to me so many years ago. Surely you knew that one day I'd be grown, no longer helpless, no longer alone. Did you not believe that I'd live to confess the memories you stole or failed to suppress? So flawed was your sinister plan ill-conceived that others first scoff, but then come to believe. I swear by all that is holy and all that is right, the next time you come to take me at night, when four little monkeys crouch near my bed, I'll take my revolver and shoot them all dead. That is so fucking awesome. Thank you. I, uh, I, I love the details of like near a star to the west is the place of their birth. And, but then, and I'm not sure how conscious you were in high school of really what was going on. But this this line where you're like, sinister deeds take some terrible toll. And immediately I'm like, what is the ramifications of all of this? What is what is down the road from, for you from a health standpoint? Uh, and that's immediately what comes to mind. And I, I don't know how conscious of all of this you were in high school, but I, I, I would like to talk about it. Uh, but before we do, can we talk about the monkey men that used to come into your room? Sure, absolutely. I'd love to. Uh, this started really when I was about age four. Um, I had, uh, matter of fact, I had a uh, roundtable discussion with uh, New York MUFON with Chris DiPerno uh, last week. And he had on three experiencers that, uh, like me, uh, Jim Mann was one, uh, Cookie. Uh, I forget her last name, Goodfellow, Cookie. Uh, she's real active in the uh, New York MUFON community. Uh, and the three of us uh, were asked questions about abduction when we were like four, five, six years old. And uh, they would ask a question and we'd write an answer with a magic marker on white paper and hold it up. You know, how tall was the entity? You know, everyone said four foot. I mean, the similarities were just insane. Um, so at, at four, these monkeys would appear in my room and they were like circus monkeys. They had long tails. I see them in red vests. I don't think that's the way they appear. Um, they spoke to me telepathically and the one nearest my head, the head of my bed would hold out a, a paw and ask me to go with them. It's like I had to give my permission. Uh, and sometimes I did, and sometimes I screamed bloody murder. So 
I know this, that one of the nightmares that's plagued me for the past 45, 50 some years, 60 some years now, has been, I'm four or five again, and I'm in my bed in my old house in St. Louis, Missouri, and the monkey holds out a paw. And in this dream, this it's a nightmare really, in this nightmare, it's not a paw. It's not a monkey paw, it's four long gray f- fingers. And uh, that dream just, I, I just flip out. Um, and I still have it on occasion. But yeah, I think that these things have the ability to appear in a way a child will find most benign. Uh, I had people write to me, send me emails saying that they saw owls when they were four, five, and six. They saw deer. Uh, One kid saw a raccoon uh, in Texas here. Uh, Actually, it was a ball of light that would come through his window and then manifest into a two foot tall raccoon that spoke to him telepathically. How great is that? And he could never re- recall what the conversations were. Uh, one woman wrote to me and said, Disney characters would appear to her and talk to her at night when they take her. So, so yeah, I think everybody's experience is a little different but I think it's tailored to the individual. Yeah. I, I, uh... I got that impression too with some of the stories that were submitted in the second book where some people would see it was like a holiday store and then somebody else would see a carnival. Yes. Uh, And and we could talk about those stories later, but I do find it interesting how everything seems tailor-made for to stop a specific individual. I know that you will be interested in a Christmas store, therefore you will see a Christmas store, you know. Yeah, yeah. Or the kid from El Paso here who, who had the two foot tall talking raccoon in his in his uh, in his uh, bedroom. Crazy. I'd so be okay I, with a raccoon. What's that? I'd be okay with a raccoon. Yeah, I'd be cool with a raccoon. Yeah, you know, as long as it's not rabbit, I'm good with that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, uh, they would take me. And I would be in a round white room uh, and I'd always be in my night clothes and there were always the same kids there, maybe a dozen and always the same kids, but they weren't from the neighborhood or from daycare. Uh, I didn't know them. I've, uh, I've wondered all these years if I ran across somebody that was, you know, would we recognize one another? Um, there's an author named Deb Cobble, uh, who was um, Bud Hopkins uh, took her case and regressed her. And uh, she uh, lived in Michigan. I think she's in Indiana, Iowa, somewhere. I don't know. She's in the Midwest. And I met her at a conference and uh, in 2019. And we were talking and she just published a book. Um, and she told me about how uh, when she was a kid that she'd be taken from her bed and go to this white room with half a dozen kids. And she said that they were given, they were given uh, uh, geometric shaped balls, cubes, uh, geometric forms, little pyramids 
uh, all different colors. And they gave me a blue cube. And I had this blue cube about, you know, 16 inches in diameter. And I was supposed to sit it in front of me and move it with my mind. That was the exercise. And Deb Cobble had the exact same experience. Uh, she had a, a, a globe or a ball or something. Jim Mann had the same experience. Um, Cookie, I can't remember her last name. I'm embarrassed, but I'll look uh, it up. she had a similar experience. Uh, and then one day, uh, I was concentrating on moving this thing. And these, these forms, um, weird, they had, they had almost no mass. I mean, if I dropped it to the floor, it would fall to the, to the, to the, to the floor, but it weighed like nothing. And uh, there was always a woman there who was, um, I believe a hybrid maybe. She was about four foot tall. Um, the back of her head was bulbous uh, and there was kind of a crease down the center, the back of her head. Uh, that's the entity that I've referred to as Sue because she reminded me of a neighbor, an Asian lady from Japan who lived in back of us. So, uh, and she had the dark eyes uh, and they weren't exaggerated large. They were just like a pair of wraparound Ray-Bans, uh, but they were this beautiful gloss black. And um, that's, that's the experience I remember most vividly was playing with these geometric cubes. I, I don't recall any other, you know, puzzles or games, never took a potty break, never got a glass of water just uh, hung out and uh, talked to these other kids uh, with our minds and no idea what the reason behind that was. I know this is just conjecture, but what do you think the purpose with the, with the geometric shapes was? Again, conjecture. Uh, I think it was to measure our ability and see if any of us had some kind of innate ability to do psychokinesis. I know I can't do it on, I can't do it here on earth. I can't do it. I could do it wherever they took me because uh, I did it once, um, but it doesn't work here. Just like, uh, you know, um, I can't, I can't communicate telepathically here, yeah. but I could when I was with them. So, yeah, I, I wonder about like the other kids too. And you said they weren't from their local area, and I don't think it would make sense for them to take the same kids at the same time. I, I feel like because, and, and we'll get to this later on when you talk about your Air Force incident, where they don't want you talking or comparing notes with others. So it would make sense to me that they would pull them from different regions. And so you were probably in a class with people, the same people over and over again, who were plucked from different regions. And, the, and maybe that was regarded as, oh, this is safe because they're never going to cross gonna, one another. Yeah, yeah. I, I had that thought. And this thing had a um, academic vibe to it. You know, I mean, I'm just four and five, but it felt like school. Um, a lot of stuff, a lot, most of it I don't remember. Um, I mean, I remember going I remember coming back. 
um, I wasn't afraid once I got there. Once I got there, I was fine. But the process of these monkey men taking me scared me to death. Sometimes I could just say, okay, let's go. Sometimes I just scream my head off. And I guess at that age, most kids have that fear of what if they don't bring me back? And I think that comes across in the poem I wrote, um, fear that I won't be returned. You know, what happens if mom can't hear me scream? So, um, yeah, well, but once I got there, I was fine. That's interesting because it's, it, it reminds me weirdly, I don't know why this reminds me of this, but it reminds me of how people describe near-death experiences where they're scared until they're in this sort of void, at which point it's normal to them. And it, I find that very, very interesting. So do the I. Correlation. I, I put an uh, email address in the back of Incident at Devil's Den, and I said, look, I'm not a therapist or anything, but if you'd like to share your uh, experience, please email me. So I've got 2,000 emails plus since 2018. But I've had a good solid dozen people from the NDE community write to me and say, this was my experience. Can you see the parallels? And, you know, you just kind of named them. Uh, I, I see the parallels. Uh, and uh, I, I wonder about, you know, Bigfoot and Ghost and all the rest of this stuff. and feel that there's just some thread of commonality that runs through all of this. Yeah. So. And, and for those of you listening who, who aren't uh, following uh, the NDE near death experiences, there's this, there, there's a correlation where um, there's this fear as you're transitioning out, but then you wind up in this, sometimes it's a void. People describe it differently. Uh, for the most part, I hear the term void a lot. Uh, and, uh, there's this feeling like it's just a normal place that they're familiar with and they're not scared anymore. And that's why I, I brought that up because there just seems to be a correlation between some of these abduction experiences, the way they feel and near death experiences. So, but that, that, that's sort of the, the, those experiences as a child are the basis for this poem that you write in high school. So when you're in high school, uh, how present were these experiences in your mind at the time? You know, they were present as important memories. I knew somehow they were important. Um, but age 18, I was thinking that this was all history. I mean, if you read the, if you read the poem, it, it, I, it, I talk like that. You know, I'm grown now. This is part of my past. And that was really the way I felt. I, I didn't expect it to continue for a lifetime. And in 1975, I, uh, I was a medic, I was an EMT, a, a first responder, and uh, worked the night shift with the guy I refer to as Toby. And Toby and I had a uh, ambulance call to go to a missile silo. I was stationed at Whiteman Air Force Base in uh, Knob Noster, Missouri, east of Kansas City. Um, back in 77, there was nothing there. It was extremely remote. It's built up a lot now. Uh, so um, 
we got a call one night that at one of these missile silos, they had a squadron of Minuteman II ICBM missiles spread out all over the countryside there. And they, they yanked those out in the mid nineties. Um, but there was a missile technician uh, who fell off a ladder doing routine maintenance on, on a missile. Um, and uh, they thought the guy might've broke his leg. So we went out and uh, it's kind of an interesting story in that um, there was a, just a lot of weirdness to it. There were a lot of security police there. You know, I would expect maybe one or two cars, but there were five or six trucks um, and guys with rifles. And, you know, that's just not, you know, for some guy, for, for a guy who fell and maybe twisted his ankle or something, that's just uh, an unusual response. So we got there and uh, we were told there was a, I don't know if he was a captain or a lieutenant, but uh, he was on the scene and in charge. And when I rolled up, it was just a bitterly cold night. I mean, single digits. And he said, park your ambulance over there. Your guy's inside, he's walking and talking. You'll be able to go uh, get him when I tell you to. Uh, and he says, uh, stay off the radio and stay in your vehicle. Yes, sir, whatever you say. So. We, we pull over and I can't see it. We can't see out the windows because the inside of the windows are frosting over. So my buddy, Toby, who uh, was the impulsive one uh, says, man, I'm going to go out and see what's going on. I'm like, Hey, you know, we got an order not to do that. And he's like, ah, I'm just going to have a look. See, so he get, grabs his park. And he jumps out of the ambulance and, He's gone, and I can't see what's going on. He's gone just a couple of minutes. Comes back, yanks my door open on the passenger side, grabs me by the shoulder, and says, "Man, you have got to see this. You have got. You have never seen anything like this. You've got to see this." And he's pulling me out of the ambulance. I'm grabbing my parka, and uh, we walk over to this this captain or lieutenant, and he's like this, looking up in the air. And uh, at first, I I didn't know what people were looking at. Uh, and there was this thing very much like the object that they saw at Rendlesham. Uh, I called it a black diamond, for lack of a better word, because it had multifaceted parts. It was matte black and about the size of a full-size van. Uh, I saw it and it, it was cool. It was absolutely motionless uh, over, the, over the silo, over the tube where the missile comes out, <laughs> like 50 feet up in the air and just... Uh, absolute silent and just as still as it could be. And you know, your mind, cause they got the security police guys got their searchlights on it. So it's kind of illuminated. And it's like your mind wants to look for wires or something. It's just not natural to see something levitated like that at a, at, and dead still. Um, and we never, you know, the thought of it being extraterrestrial never crossed my mind. Um, Toby and I both uh, discussed it. I mean, I saw a flying saucer when I was a kid. I thought I was an expert on uh, UFOs, and this wasn't a saucer. Ergo, it wasn't, you know, extraterrestrial. I really thought it was some kind of prototype helicopter or something from the Russians. And Toby, Toby uh, thought the same. You know, while we watched, it shot from zero to 500 miles an hour and just disappeared over the horizon. And we, you know, we were told, yeah, that's a prototype hel helicopter. You can't talk about it. 
and uh, which, which we went out and did, you know, to everybody that listened, hey, you ought to see what we saw, you know. You're with Toby. You're with Toby during this incident as well. Yes. I really appreciate your friendship in this book. And um, it's sort of, uh, to me, the the relationship with Toby really humanizes this whole experience in a way where, uh, and and, and we'll get to describing everything, but is it weird that the most upsetting part was that they split you two up, for me at least, was that they split you two up and it destroyed it? Well, you know, um, because it's I, should thing. Probably be, I need to be clear about that. Yeah. Uh, because well, let's, let's let's describe the incident. I yeah. Can, can I, we start with the um, this very strange and out of the it's out of the ordinary idea to go camping in the first place. <laughs> we'd never been. Yeah, you know, we're city kids. We've never been camping. We, you know, we know first thing about it. Um, but you know, my friend Toby came up to me, uh, and this was about April or April probably, and said, "I mean, just out of the blue, hey man, I got an idea. Let's go camping." And I'm like, "What are you nuts? You know, we could sleep in your garage and eat bugs and get the same effect. You know, why why drive somewhere and waste the gas?" And uh, he's like, "No, no, think about it." Uh, he knew that I was an amateur photographer back then. Had a little dark room set up, but we both lived in NCO housing on the base. So there's not a lot that I could do with my camera on a nuclear base. Photography's frowned upon. Uh, and I wanted to go photograph some wildlife. And my friend Toby, this is interesting, and, and I, I really regret that I never, I never pressed him on this issue to find out what the genesis of it was, but he was just absolutely ate up with the night sky. I mean, this kid could point out constellations. He could time satellites that would come over. And there weren't that many in 1977. Uh, he really loved this stuff. And, uh, you know, we never talked about that. Uh, I would like to have told him about the monkey man. I bet he was interested. I bet he was he was uh, visited by something too, would be my guess. Uh, and, you know, we drove down there in June of 77, you know, uh, had a $9 Kmart tent, some blow up air mattresses. You know, both of us had, were recently married and our wives made us pack us a cooler full of stuff. Um, I admit there was, there was a series of missteps along the way getting down there, but I mean, it all worked out. Um, and we got down there and we, we didn't stay in the campground. We wanted to dodge the campground because the light pollution would ruin Toby's chance of looking at anything in the night sky. And, uh, I, you know, there's not a lot of uh, wildlife around a crowded campground. I mean, you got people to the right of you, people to the left of you. So we, uh, skipped the kiosk, didn't buy a camping permit and we, came across a chain in the road uh, with the sternly worded, you know, keep out, do not enter sign. And uh, I thought we were gonna have to turn around and my buddy's like, no, no, I got this, I got this. 
he hops out of the car and what the park rangers had done was take the end of that chain and just loop it around and padlock it and they draped it over a nail of the opposing post so you know what you know why have to fumble with keys if you don't have to so um he gets up and picks this thing up drops it and falls to the ground and i mean we felt like lewis and clark you know we, we drove in and uh in my 66 Impala and, um, but what's interesting is that we could have made a dozen different turns left or right. And by chance, we drove straight to this, um, this plateau. And uh, the plateau is still there. Did I send you pictures and stuff? I've seen the pictures on my own accord on your Facebook. Okay. And I also did a Google Earthing of it to kind of get a better sense of the whole layout of Devil's Den. My, my apologies for that. I'm, I'm usually more on a ball, but... Oh, no, no, no. I, I'm the right guy to be talking to because I will go in and do Google Earth and <laughs> look at it myself. And for those of you interested, uh, yeah, I'll point you to Terry's Facebook page so that uh, you can find your way there. It's really interesting. It's, it's this elevated... It's literally a plateau, an open field, and it looks like the perfect spot to set down if you're coming in from above. Yeah, from a certain angle, it's almost triangular shape. Yeah, I noticed that. And there is no no road. It's just dirt road that goes almost straight up. And, um, I, you know, I never bothered to look at Google Earth for this. Because I thought, ah, you know what? That thing's covered with 40-year-old mature trees by now. No way is it still there. Um, well, I found out a couple things. That, that chain across the road, uh, on the other side of that chain, we weren't even in Devil's Den State Park. That's land that's owned by the federal government, uh, titled to the Bureau of Land Management, and leased to a private individual. But what's interesting is, is that when we were there, the, uh, the grass was cut and somebody cuts that grass to this day. Uh, when, I, when I published the picture on Facebook, uh, a guy I talked to regularly, who was a landscaper down in Alabama, sends me a, a message and says, hey man, those are tractor treads. I can see, I can blow this up and see them plainly. Somebody goes up there with a brush hog, which I guess is a big mower deck that you pull behind a farm tractor, uh, goes up there and cuts that regularly. So I guess the question is, why would the federal government be interested in cutting grass on the top of a plateau in the middle of nowhere? Uh, that's a lot of gas to burn and a lot of wages to pay to some guy to do it. Over 50 years, it doesn't make sense to me. Well, I feel like the Department of, T of Interior is full of weird questionable stuff like that which i feel like in and of itself is is a unique episode um but you, so you and toby finds your way to this plateau yes you set up camp how fast you set up camp uh <laughs> it took a while it took a while uh you know we were in a car for six and a half hours and I wanted to stretch my legs and Toby being the more responsible one this time says, no, no, let's set up camp now. 
And I'm like, no, 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 I want to go for a hike. I want to do this. I want to do that. And uh, I want to look around a little bit. So we took a hike. And uh, that's a strange story in and of itself uh, that I think I explained. Yeah, it's in Devil's Den. We took a hike and uh, we ended up, it was a hot day and there was this cool limestone outcropping and there were uh, like a canopy of tree leaves over the, over the thing. So it was a cool spot uh, temp- temperature wise. And uh, so we'd walk probably four, four miles, uh, which I mean, we were in great shape. And so we're, we laid back and I had a gallon milk jug full of water and we split some of this water and uh, both of us fell asleep. Now, I don't get that to this day. Um, I consider that really an episode of missing time that I'd like to be regressed and explore one of these days soon. Yeah, I got that impression that that might have been like uh, sort of a preliminary thing of what's about to come. I think so too. I'd love to know. I'd love to know where we were because I think we were. I don't think we were in the park, um, or in the Bureau of Land Management's uh, <laughs> land. So we woke up, uh, and it wasn't dark yet, but it was it was on its way to getting dark. So we kind of had to hustle to get back, and uh, we hadn't set up anything yet. So we set up camp with it, you know, with sun- in sunset we set up camp, and uh, you know we did a lot of the fun stuff you do when you camp because it was all new to us. And it, you know, it worked out mostly. Uh, and uh, that night, early evening, uh, nine o'clock-ish, we are on these air mattresses and we have a campfire in between us. And we're talking, we're just, we've already eaten. We're uh, having a nice conversation. And I even, I remember I remarked, I said, man, I can understand why people like this. This is very pleasant. And uh, a few minutes later, I noticed that, and this sounds so cliche, Eric, I swear to God, it sounds like, but I swear to God, it's true. And I had other people experience the same thing. And that is that the sounds of the forest, the crickets, the tree frogs, all the stuff that makes noise in the forest at night uh, stopped. And uh, not only did the noise stop, but we even lost, we had a little bit of a breeze going on and that stopped too. So it was not only quiet, it was quiet and still. It didn't unnerve me. And I uh, asked my friend, you know, of course, like he's gonna know, uh, is this normal? Does this seem like awfully quiet all of a sudden? And he kind of just blows it off and says, yeah, you know, we've been laughing and cutting up. Don't worry about the bugs. And kind of just was dismissive about it. You know, bugs will come back. Don't worry about the bugs. I'm like, all right, all right, all right. Uh, but I did. And uh, and the bugs never did come back. Um, and a few minutes after that, my friend says, hey, Terry, were those lights there before? And I'm like, what lights? What are you talking about? I, I couldn't see his torso was in the way, it was blocking my view of, the, of that part of the horizon. So I had to stand up and take a step back. And on the Western horizon, there was a triangle of three little stars and tightly packed. Um, and they just looked artificial. They looked like lights 
but they were too high off the ground to have been from a parking lot or a train. Um, and we thought maybe it's some kind of aircraft. Uh, we were familiar with aircraft. We didn't know any kind of aircraft that had that triangular configuration of lights. Because, you know, if, if a plane is coming directly at you, sometimes they'll give the illusion it's not moving until it deviates its course by a degree or two. And then you can see, oh, yeah, yeah, the thing's moving. So we're watching it for a minute or two and thinking that might be the case. But it didn't. And when it did move, what it did was it rotated like it were on an axis and rotated uh, counterclockwise uh, about 120 degrees and aligned itself where the base of the triangle was parallel with the horizon. And here's where things got uh, really strange. And that is that our emotions to this were inappropriate. They were, they were muted. I mean, we should have been like, oh, you see what I'm seeing, you know, validating each other's observation. And uh, there should have been some kind of dialogue between us. And uh, there really wasn't. And I felt, and my friend felt the same thing. I felt this wave of sedation wash over me. Uh, and I also felt mildly disinterested, believe it or not. I mean, I, I wouldn't say apathetic, but close. And it was, uh, we were in a, a weird place. I mean, I felt more like I was an observer rather than I was a participant in this thing. So strange. And while we watched this thing started to move up into the sky, it reached what I call a ceiling. I have no idea how high it was. Then it turned over. And uh, then instead of three lights in a pyramid, pardon me, in a triangle, we saw three lights in a line across with the center um, pointed in our direction. And it started a, like a glide plane down toward us. And it dimmed, considerably dimmed the lights on each point of the triangle. And it came in over the forest and we could see the, the treetops illuminate uh, with this dark shadow in between. And it stopped about 3000 feet over the meadow. Um, I think that is a pretty good measure. I think that's where it was about 3000 feet over the meadow. And uh, no, you know, no real excitement on our part. We're just, we're just laying there on his air mattresses, watching this thing play out. As soon as it stopped, it shut down this beam of light that came from underneath the thing in dead center. Um, there's a drawing on terrylovelace.com, uh, a drawing that I did contemporaneous with the event. I think I drew it in August of 1977. Um, and then I redrew it from, cause I did the original pencil drawing in a spiral bound notebook. And then I redid it on some art paper. Um, I have it here. Is this the one you're talking about? Yes, that's it. That's it. There it is for everybody. Um, yeah, I was trying to, I was trying to duplicate. I'm really interested in in the size of these things, and so I was trying to measure out just how big this thing is, and. This thing is huge. It's enormous. It's a Walmart. Yeah. It's a medical building. 
and and I ended up I ended up messing around my with, <laughs> trying to I think I compared it to the Statue of Liberty at one point. I think uh, that's a fair representation. Oh, thanks. Before you continue, I think I would like to touch upon the inappropriate feelings because I think the alien apathy, which you call it in the book, is uh, that's a special sort of detail that seems to still exist today, and uh, but then also the way the way this craft moves is exactly the way Bob Lazar describes these things moving. I don't know if you know who he is or have seen his interviews. He's the guy. I know um, who he is. I mean, I know of him. Uh, I've never watched one of his uh, so interviews. He describes in one of his films, uh, one of the films that he's in, because uh, he doesn't make films, but he describes the way the anti-gravity propulsion works is um, it kind of goes bottom first. So you would see it moving the way you describe it, where sort of the lower part would be parallel and you'd see the three lights coming and those three lights coming towards you would be the bottom of the craft. Um, and so it's like the bottom of a car. Somebody else described it as the bottom of a car. If it were to go up, it, it would move with its bottom going forward. Makes sense. Yeah. And the way you're describing it, I'm like, that's how Bob Lazar describes these things as being able to move. So already there's this, con there's this connectivity that's happening between your experience and what this guy who... <laughs> who wants nothing to do with any of this stuff, says that he witnessed, that he was asked to look at. All these crafts that are doing the exact same thing. And I'm just like, I'm really blown away by all that. You know, I, I, I wrote this book. I researched it in 2017 and wrote it in 28, well, late 2017, published it March 10th of 2018. And I wrote it really as... Uh, cathartic exercise more than anything else. I thought I'd maybe sell a hundred books and have a box of 50 in my garage and it'd be out of my system and I'd feel better, you know? And uh, it's not how it worked out, but that's okay. I'm, ha I'm happy with it the way it is. Uh, but that alien apathy thing, uh, when I wrote this stuff, I thought I was unique uh, because I didn't watch, I didn't watch uh, UFO related shows on television. Uh, you know, I watch very little television. I haven't, we haven't had cable in 15 years. Uh, I don't, I don't read books on UFOs. I don't read science fiction. So when I, when I published this book, I got emails by the tons of people saying, Hey, I had this happen to me or, Hey, I had that happen to me just like you did. And, uh, it was kind of comforting in a way to work, to learn that, you know, my experience wasn't all that unique, not that all that unusual. Lots of people out there. Well, so, but the, the, the thing is, is this ship's now 3000 feet above you. And I mean, if you thought, if we thought the, the emotions of the situation were inappropriate before at, for some reason, Y'all call it a night, <laughs> even though it's like right there. Yeah, yeah. And I, I can tell you, I need some WD-40 on this chair. I can tell you that that feeling of uh, mild disinterest and mild sedation transitioned abruptly to sleepy. Yeah. And they really are two separate things. They're, they're, they're not the same. Uh, I was compelled, pardon me, all I wanted to do was to get in that tent, 
lay down on that air mattress and go to sleep. I mean, that was number one on my list of priorities and I had to do it right away. My friend beat me to the tent. He was closer. He threw his air mattress in, fell on it, and he was already softly snoring by the time I threw my air mattress in and I didn't bother to undress. I didn't bother to unlace my boots, which um, was interesting because uh, that would come into play later. Um, and I just, I just fell on a thing and, uh, and uh, I don't think I was asleep. I think I was unconscious. And that, that whole inappropriateness, that alien, uh, you know, I, I think it speaks to the level of influence that these things can have over us. Um, that's like Toby had uh, uh, a camera in his backpack a foot away from him. He could have reached it without having to get up. The thought of taking a picture of this thing never crossed our minds. And you probably know, you know, if you are or you know someone who is just really, really into photography to the point of being annoying, um, that should have been the first thing crossed my mind. Was getting it happened, that it happened, it happened to me. Um, I'm a filmmaker. My girlfriend yeah. can tell you the moment I see something worthwhile, I got my phone out. And I'm photographing it. I have a special cinema app that allows me to take as raw footage as a camera can possibly take. And and I want it for my archives and I want it clean. And whenever I see something weird in the sky, I have no inclination to do it. And I don't know why. Yeah. And it really annoys me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, you might be shocked. Uh, you know, I... I um... I don't know did I, if I went into the helicopters or not. I don't think I did. No, the helicopters came later. The helicopters came after. Uh, weird events happened. I, you know, I published the, the book in March of 2018. And uh, about 60 days later, I get a call. Uh, I pick up my phone and it says uh, Los Angeles. And I got friends in L.A. I thought, well, somebody I know. And hi, this is Terry. And uh, the voice on the other end says, hi, Terry, it's Tom DeLong. Now, <laughs> love is music. Yeah, you know, I mean, <laughs> when I was helping my daughter prepare for my daughter's wedding, uh, she played a couple songs from Blink-182. Uh, so I knew the name, but I, it wasn't like, Tom DeLong, sounds familiar, can't play the place, you know. I'm, so I'm like, hi, Tom, how are you, you know? And he says, I'm here with General McArdle, Lou Elizondo, and a couple other names that didn't register um, and he said, I want to talk to you about the things in your leg and about your experience. I'm like, sure. Uh, so we talked and I did kind of a run through of what happened. And, um, he said, I'd like to send a medical doctor down to, uh, take fresh x-rays of your legs and talk to you. Would that be okay? I'm like, absolutely. Um, so he did a few weeks later, um, this very kind physician came down and spent two days with me and took x-rays and did some tests and uh, went through my story in just excruciating detail. And uh, then he left and then uh, I didn't hear anything from anybody. Um, and then I got a call from uh, Lou Elizondo saying, you know, Hey, I'd like to come down and, and uh, see you for a day, maybe two. So I'm like, sure. 
So in June of 2019, he came down and spent two days with me uh, and uh, brought a camera guy with him. And of course, I mean, crazy things happen with electricity around me. He's filming it. Battery drops from 100 to zero and like that. And he's like, hmm, you know, has to replace it. Happens again. Luckily, it only happened twice. Like I just wanted to make a statement, you know. Um, yeah, electricity acts weird around me. Uh, he wanted to see some of the pictures that I'd taken of UFOs and some of the pictures of helicopters. Um, yeah, I didn't mention this in the book because it happened after the book was, was published. But um, about the time I got the call from Tom DeLong, my wife joked, did they reroute the traffic copter or something? Because we had heard his helicopter over our heads, you know. And it was the same time every morning. It was between 9 and 11. And during that time of day, if you walk out my front door, I had this humongous tree on the left and then the morning sun to my right. And between those hours of the morning, my field of vision was really limited to 180 degrees in back of me. So these helicopters would come out of the, from around the tree or out of the sun and do a flyover of my house. And uh, I started taking pictures of them. I have 168 pictures of helicopters, <laughs> uh, and none of them have any markings. Uh, I, I looked up the law. The law requires that a helicopter for commercial use must display, uh, you know, the alphabetical symbol N like Nancy, uh, followed by a string of numbers that identifies that particular vehicle. Uh, and there were no marks on any of these things. There were four different kinds of helicopters. There was a, like a grab bag of military uh, Robertson R-22, Robertson R-44s, and uh, uh, Airbus 350s or something. I think Airbus 350s. I got a friend who was an Army helicopter pilot who helped identify these for me. And um, so they I started... They showed up around the time DeLong contacted you. Yes. Yeah. Well, let's let's revisit that because... I think there's a lot to say about that, but we're we're still in Devil's Den. We're still in Devil's Den. We're yes, still we in Devil's Den. Um, I can pick up right where we left off. You, you, you guys are calling it a night. That's about about right. Yes, uh, Toby's already asleep on his air mattress. I throw mine in, and I'm asleep out of it the second my head hits the inflatable yellow pillow, and. Um, didn't take off my shirt, didn't take off my boots, nothing, just, and in retrospect, we figured out that we woke up about an hour before dawn, but we had no idea what time it was. We both had nice wind up mechanical watches because we needed them for our job. Um, I mean, kind of state of the art of the day. They were wind up, but they were accurate. And uh, uh, both of our watches stopped. Mine stopped at 2.40. Toby stopped at 2.42, and those watches never worked again. So I don't know the deal behind that. I woke up to these flashing lights coming through the canvas of the tent, and they were just incredibly bright. I mean, like an old-school flashbulb kind of like, you know, just they lit up the inside of that tent. I mean, like a ballpark at night, it was just – and uh, – I wake up and I don't have my wits about me. 
and I'm confused and I'm thinking, oh, oh yeah, yeah, that's right. Toby and I were camping that's night. That's what it is. That's where we're at. And I sat up and when I sat up, I noticed that my boots had been unlaced uh, almost all the way down. Uh, that didn't scare me, but it annoyed me because I, I knew I wouldn't have gone to bed like that. I would have taken them off. I would have laced them up, but I wouldn't have gone to bed with them like that. So I took off my boots to put them on, lace them up, and my socks are on sideways. And that really confused me because no, no way would I do that. You know, one of the things they drill into you is take care of your feet because if you can't walk, you're really no good to the, uh, to the Air Force. So I, uh, I, I fixed my boots and I turned my attention to my friend and uh, he's on his knees. He's looking out. He's to my left, looking out of the tent at something. And in my mind's eye, I'm seeing these lights, yellow and white. They're flashing, but at odd intervals. And I'm trying to, to reason what these things could be. And I'm thinking, you know, maybe these are the overhead park flashing lights on top of a park ranger's truck there to, you know, kick us out because we were trespassing. Uh, I mean, we weren't too concerned about that. We didn't think it was a crime of the century or anything. Um, so I asked my friend, I'm like, Toby, man, what is it? Is it park rangers? Who's out there? And he didn't give me a, a reasonable answer. And I asked him, I said, is it park rangers? And he didn't answer me. So I pulled back the flap on my side of the tent and I looked out over the meadow and I saw two things, this triangle that had been uh, 3,000 feet over our heads just some hours earlier has descended and is now 30 feet over the top of the meadow. Thankfully, we had set up camp offside uh, near, near where the, uh, like the ledge is. We weren't in the middle. Otherwise, this thing had been over our heads and that would have been really uncomfortable. Um, and that's why we were able to see the uh, sides of the thing because when it was 3,000 feet over our heads, all we could see was the underneath. And the uh, flash, the lights were so bright because the thing was so close to us. Uh, the second thing that I saw was what I thought to be a dozen, maybe 15 kids. And I'm like, Toby, man, what are these kids doing out here in the middle of the night, in the middle of nowhere? And in one of these flashes of light, I saw tear tracks down the side, right side of his face. Now that that freaked me out. And my, my fear factor went from probably a, a one to a six because I couldn't imagine what would make this guy cry. And, and then Toby said in a very serious tone, look at him again, Terry, they're not human beings. And he says, don't you remember? They took us inside that thing and they hurt us. And I wanted to cry. I was just overwhelmed uh, because I had a mental flash of being inside the thing. I mean, I have some images from being inside of there. I've never had a clear linear memory of what happened to us, um, but I did have some images. And now, now I'm scared to death thinking that I'm going to cough or sneeze or do something. And these guys are going to come over and, uh, and we had no way of knowing they were long done with us. You know, they kicked us out. Um, and what happened was while we were watching, this light came on from the center and underneath this thing that was about 
It's about 30 feet in diameter. It was about as broad as it, this thing was tall off the ground. And it was a, um, a milky white light. Uh, it had that quality that a high searchlight, high power searchlight has cutting through fog where you can see a visible column of light. Uh, but of course there was no fog. There was just this visible weird light. And as soon as that clicked on, all of these little guys turned their attention toward it and started to meander over toward it. And uh, they had, they were paired up in twos and threes and kind of scattered around the meadow. They walked with a really weird gait, by the way. They walked like they had sore feet or something. I, I don't know how else to explain it, but, but they made their way toward this light and they would step into this light in twos and threes and just uh, pixelate out. Very much like the old Star Trek uh, remember from the 60s, Star Trek, they had a, uh, a thing where they were teleporting, transponding, whatever, sending somebody from point A to point B, and they would like evaporate, they would pixelate out. Um, and that's very much what this looked like. These things would just pixel out and be gone. And we watched until the last two little guys were gone, and then this thing lifted off, and it didn't take off like a rocket ship. It just lifted up like a hot air balloon and went up and we saw, you know, three lights. And I think the, the higher it got, the faster it went. And then one light and then it was gone. And uh, I was terrified. I, I told my friend, I'm not leaving this tent till it's daylight. And uh, he's like, no, we got to go now. Um, and I, we had a little bit of back and forth. And then I, I, uh, agreed we should go. I took my wallet and my keys and he took a flashlight in his wallet and that's it. We left everything there. Our tent, his nice cooler, uh, his backpack with his address at, on Whiteman Air Force Base because we lived on base. Um, his address was in the backpack. And I think that's maybe how they found us. I think uh, they may have found that chain across the road laying on the, laying on the ground and no, knew that someone had been in there and came and found our campsite. And my guess is, is that somebody, maybe one of the park rangers calls the base and says, you know, hey, it looks like a couple of your airmen were down here. Uh, and it looks like they're planning on coming back. Well, of course, we had no plans on ever going back, but um, we just left our stuff. Uh, it's important <clears throat> for me to know, we were talking about that, um, how the military busts up people, sends them in different directions. Uh, that's a very common thing. Uh, there's a guy named Robert Hastings who wrote the book, uh, UFOs and Nukes. And uh, I talked to Robert uh, a lot and he tells me that's routine uh, within the military system. If you I mean, if two guys see the saucer dart, dart across the sky, that's really no big deal. But if you have something a little more intimate like Toby and I experienced, um, they bust those guys up. If there's three of them, they'll go in three different directions. Um, but that is absolutely standard procedure uh, in all of the services. And uh, the second thing is, you know, I really, 
something changed. We, we left that meadow. Uh, we were different people. Uh, for one thing, you know, we were both recently married. Our, our wives were friends. We, uh, on our days off, we might play volleyball or cards or barbecue or something. So, you know, we, we worked together. We were friends. And uh, uh, on the way back, it's a long six-hour drive if there's no conversation. Um, we, well, we were hurting pretty bad. We both had... Um, like I had the worst sunburn I'd ever had without blistering or peeling. And I had what was called flash burns to my eyes, which is that uh, what an arc welder would get if he didn't wear that hood with the smoke glass to protect his eyes or her eyes. Uh, and it's a sunburn to the cornea of your eye and it's very painful. So I'm trying to drive back, um, you know, and the sunlight's just killing me. Um, but something was different between Toby and I. And I can't reconcile this. I don't know why, but I suddenly wanted nothing to do with the guy. And I think that that again speaks to the level of influence that these things have over us because that's not, I'm not made that way. If you're my friend, you're my friend. Um, it was just weird. I mean, the, the one thing that we agreed to was that under no, under no circumstances would we ever admit that we saw a UFO, you know, the size of a medical building. Not, we would just, we didn't want to lie. We just leave that part out. You know, we went to bed feeling funny. True. We woke up feeling funny. True. Sick. Went home, you know, get, got out of there, drove back home. Didn't care about a $9 Kmart tent or anything else. But, uh, they knew, I don't know how they knew, but they knew what we saw. And I, I think the OSI, the Office of Special Investigations, that's the uh, security police, that's their version. Like NCIS is to the Navy, OSI is to the Air Force. Um, and they came and uh, saw me. I spent three days in the hospital uh, for my eyes and um, on my evening, last evening in the hospital, uh, the night nurse comes in and, you know, I'm a member of the hospital squadron. I know everybody, they know me and medical people take care of their own. I was treated very well. And as the nurse walks in, these two guys in blue business suits followed her in. And these guys were just, they were cops. I mean, uh, I didn't have, uh, much exposure to, you know, law enforcement, I'm 22. I don't, you know, I don't have much life experience or certainly not the benefit of a law degree. Um, so these guys came in and showed me their credentials and uh, told the nurse, if that injection is going to sedate Sergeant Lovelace, it's going to have to wait. So she was going to argue that, you know, this guy's getting his injection now. And this guy was having none of it. Guy about 50 years old was a major uh, and he said to her in a harsh tone, and shut the door on your way out. Now, in retrospect, there may have been an element of theater in that, too. Um, and it may have been to intimidate me, uh, which it did. And uh, they, they wanted to know, well, the Rangers found your little campsite, and it looks like you guys were planning on going back. You guys got a little marijuana plot growing down there? Is that what this is all about? 
Now, I mean, that's almost comical today. <coughs> Pardon me. But in 1977, you know, there would be nothing funny about being active duty and being caught growing marijuana on federal land which would be a, a serious matter. And um, this guy just interrogates me for about a half an hour. Um, then when he leaves, he, uh, and he had this odd Southern accent, kind of like, I don't know if it's Louisiana or Alabama or someplace. And he got down next to my ear and he whispers, son, I know, and you know, you two knuckleheads stumbled onto something when you were out there. And I think you know what I mean. And I didn't answer. I didn't, I didn't know how to answer. And he followed up with, uh, oh, I know you know what I'm talking about. And all I want to know is how many pictures of it did you take? And, you know, without thinking, I blurted out, sir, I, didn't took a, I, I never took a single picture. And he just smiled because he had my admission. You know, I knew he knew, he knew I knew. I don't know how he knew, but uh, I think that they had a genuine concern that I had a 36 exposure roll of uh, black and white film of this thing. God, I wish I had. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do wonder about this agent Gregory. That's what you call him in the book. I don't know if that's his real name or if you changed it or what, but I changed the names. Yeah. I probably, you know, they're probably all dead now anyway. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, cause one of my, one of my bullet points was, I wonder if he or his, his people who Kate, who replaced him uh, are aware of you now, you know, are aware of your books. Wouldn't it be great if he, he was aware of your books? <laughs> it would be great. It would be great. You know, I, I came real close to using some real names in there. And I thought, you know what? Uh, I mean, you can't defame a dead person. Uh, yeah. But, you know, somebody might in the family might take exception and it could just be trouble. So. Yeah. Well, so eventually they kind of bully you into regressing. And, and you got this guy, Brad, who's, who's running the hypnosis session. At which point we learn kind of kind of the bullet points of what went on inside inside yeah. the craft. Yeah, you know, I, I recall the first memory I had, and this popped into my head right when uh, Toby said, don't you remember they took us? When he said that, the image popped into my head. And uh, Images still pop into my head. I called them intrusive thoughts. I didn't find out till mid eighties that I'm having PTSD flashbacks from this event. So, you know, I'll be doing something completely, you know, I'll be cooking something and suddenly I'll just have a flash of this memory. Um, but, uh, and I completely lost my train of thought. <laughs> was I headed? Well, uh, can you describe inside you're sitting inside and and you just well in the book you describe you're you're pinched between people and they're kind of i i visualized it based on your description that you were sitting in a row of people you couldn't turn your head but you could move move your eyes around that's right we were standing uh, actually and i had my clothing and my boots in my hands like this in front of me okay yeah and uh and you're absolutely right i could sense i couldn't really see him clearly but i could sense toby was next to me 
and we were segregated off to the side and there were other people there that were, they were lined up because I couldn't turn my head. I don't know how deep those columns went or how wide those rows of people were. I mean, it could have been 30 people. There could have been 300 people there because I couldn't, I couldn't clearly see the entire formation. But just like us, they were all um, uh, nude, all holding their clothing in their arms like this and all of them rolling their eyes all over the place and all of them crying. And uh, it was a mixed bag of uh, men, women and children. So um, that was very disconcerting. And I've wondered about that for years because, you know, they kicked us out. Sorry. Uh, I have some cats here too. I got to call you back. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, that's the phone. <laughs> I, I apologize for that. I, I thought funny. I had, had it turned off. No worries, man. I'm a cat guy. Yeah, yeah I got I got eight of them right here. And I'm we always really? leaving them off. <laughs> ah, I love that. Yeah, we, we just got two new kittens. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. So. Yeah. So these people, um, they kicked us out. Uh, but this thing, I believe, went up with all these people. Um, and I've also, you know, I, I wonder to this day where these people are. Yeah. Where did they end up? There was a, a point where um, you you had implied that maybe they don't return everybody. And that was an assumption. Yeah. So a fear, really. Yeah. And then David Pilates came out with his Missing 411 book series. And yeah, I've been trying to get him on because he's got some, some, he's literally the only person who seems to be investing and in investigating and bringing forth that aspect of all this where people go missing. People aren't returned. Lots of people do. Under weird, weird circumstances. You know, the fourth volume in that Missing 411 series is called The Devil is in the Details. Mm -hmm. Talks about Devil's Den State Park and little Catherine Van Alst. Um, yep. Yeah, and some, some, someday I, I hope to be able to bring him on to talk about that. Uh, but, but returning to, to Inside the Ship, when you're standing with Toby, kind of separate from these other people, does that when you see uniformed service officers it is it is i saw um young guys young men well there, one of them was a woman so about seven guys and a woman uh could have been six about about that um walked across our field of view would not look at us of course we had no way to communicate with them uh, and i couldn't see what the guy was doing because he was turned this way, but he was doing something to a panel on the wall and it was just like punch, punch. And then he turns around and they all walk away in mass. Never heard them speak, never heard them say a word. Um, they wore tan colored flight suits and they had round orange patches on the shoulders. And uh, one of these days I'd like to be regressed and see if I could get some closer image of what that what was on that patch yeah 
but I, I know this, they had their, the, their flight suits were dressed into their boots, tucked into their boots. And I swear they wore uh, GI issue combat boots. It sure looked like the same ones I had on my feet or in my arms at that point. Well, that, that, that's one of those details again, that stands out to me because again, going back to Bob Lazar, this guy says that we have nine saucers or at least the air force has nine saucers that they claim they dug up. But then there are also rumors that they were given to us. And, and I believe the latter to a certain extent because of what you say you saw. I'm wondering if there was a barter. Yeah, and I know it's all conjecture. No, but... no, no. I, I think so. And if you think about it, there really are only three options. Uh, you know, we, we either work in arm in arm with ET. ET and, and the U.S. government uh, is in some type of quid pro quo where they give us stuff and we give them maybe a license to take people or cattle. Or three, they just do what they want because they can yeah. One of those three. You know, this is an event. This is a program, I should say, that if those people were ever, I don't know if they're reintroduced into society after their service time or whatnot with their memories, but if they are and they're living with this, I mean, this is like a stewing Nuremberg 2.0. If you yeah. think about it, I, I mean, it's bad. And it's there's something about it, too, where they wouldn't look at you. So they fucking knew better. They absolutely knew better. And I do wonder, like, one, are they still are they still here? Or were they moved off and not have to deal with the rest of humanity? And if they are here, were their memories wiped? Like, I want to know who they are, and I want to know what they were doing. What were they doing on that panel? Like, it's it's an affront to science, and it's a front to all of us that there are people who know what's going on and aren't telling us. And I, I can't believe that this is the biggest secret in the world. But, you know, Manhattan Project was kept secret, and, yeah. uh, you know, the F-117 stealth fighter was kept secret. Uh, so secrets happen, yeah. Uh, but it's just—I just find it hard to believe somebody hasn't uh, called up Linda Bolton Howe and said, "said you know, <laughs> I got have I got a story for you?" Yeah. Well, I, and 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 what's most infuriating too is if they're willingly keeping a secret, if their memories are intact and they're just willing to keep a secret, I can't imagine it's for anything other than either a pension the safety of their family or both. And I don't know. I just don't know that risking an enti the entire population of the planet for either of those. I can't imagine myself personally doing it. That just, that, that's, that upsets me. And, and the way you describe it though, I am, my mind went immediately to Schindler's List. Straight up. It just I didn't make that connection, but yeah. It's, it's what it felt like to me. You're a good writer also to your credit. Uh, <laughs> um, so that's the big event. There, you, you, and 
there's there's some standard sort of on the operating table type of stuff embedded in that. You hear screaming from other rooms. All that stuff is really powerful. I recommend people read the book to to get a lot of those details. Uh, eventually, OSI cuts you loose. They they kind of accept that you forgot your camera uh, and didn't take any pictures. Um, so, what happens between you and Toby? Well, Toby got orders to Japan. Uh, I got moved from the medical squadron to a supply squadron to hang out while he was getting his orders cut and getting out of off base. Uh, I did stop by his house. I, uh, I was having trouble processing this. I really was. I, I was struggling with it. And I had no way of knowing that Toby was struggling with it. Um, but I thought... In my mind's eye, I thought if I could just see this guy again, even though I really don't care to have anything to do with the guy, if I could just see him again, shake his hand, wish him well, and tell you know he and his wife goodbye, wish you guys best of luck, have fun in Japan. Uh, I appreciate you know working with you. Um, and I thought that I'd walk away from that feeling better. So I. My wife was driving uh, and I asked her, I said, stop by Toby's, I'm like two blocks away from me. I want to just want to run in and tell the guy goodbye. And she's like, Terry, don't screw with these OSI people. They scare me. And I said, yeah, they scare me too, but I'm going to be in there four minutes, four minutes. You can time me. So I, uh, she was reticent, but she pulled over and I hopped out of the car and I ran up same door. I'd walked through a hundred times before. Uh, I did what I always did. The door was never locked. I just rapped three times on the door, loud opened it, said, hey, guys, it's me. And I walked in, and uh, it was just a different vibe. Uh, Toby's wife walked past me with a box or a lamp, something in her arms. They were packing for the move. And uh, she kind of, un in an unfriendly way, said, you're not supposed to be here. And I said, I know, I know, I know you guys are going to Japan. I just wanted to say goodbye to, to you and to my friend and wish you guys well. And she kept walking, but Toby must have heard this exchange because he walked around the corner uh, of the hallway. I was standing in front of the foyer and there was a short hallway um, and he was a train wreck. I, I mean, Toby was one of these guys that was always meticulous about his appearance. I mean, he could play volleyball for three hours and look like he gets just got dressed, you know? I mean, I was, I was the slob of the duo, but he was, uh, his haircut was always within regs. He was always clean shaven. He, uh, and when he came around the corner, he, uh, his hair was all wonky. Uh, he hadn't shaved. He was wearing a dirty t-shirt and jeans. Now I cut him some slack cause he was moving and that's dirty work. Um, but I want to mention, too, that Toby wasn't a drinker. You know, when we played cards or something, he might drink a can of beer, maybe a can and a half and put the rest on, on chicken on the grill or something. But he wasn't a drinker. And uh, when I saw him, I felt I felt stunned for some reason. I don't know how to express it. And I thought it would be appropriate to just embrace the guy, pat him on the back. Uh, and I didn't do that. And 
Uh, Toby was shorter than I am. And when he got up close to me, I stuck my hand out at the same time he stuck his hand out and we missed one another and finally made this inelegant handshake. Um, and uh, I said, I, I know you guys are going to Japan. I just want to wish you well and say, I've enjoyed working with you. And uh, he just looked up and I could smell liquor on his breath. Very out of character, very out of character. And he looked up at me and he said, it happened, didn't it, Terry? And I said, yes, my brother, it really happened. You're not losing your mind. And he said, but why us? And I said, man, I don't have an expletive clue. Um, and I turned and I ran out of the house. I got in the car and I was shaking. Uh, so it wasn't, it wasn't the closure at all that I expected. It was more anxiety than anything. But that kind of reaffirmed um, the thought that I really didn't want to be around the guy, didn't want to see him. So at what point does the implant in your leg come into the picture? 2012. Uh, I retired from the state of Vermont on January 3rd of uh, 2012. And we, my wife and I moved back to that, not back to, we moved to Dallas where our kids and grandkids are. And uh, I never had a thought about ever speaking about this publicly. I certainly never gave writing a book a second thought and I never, never considered it. And I went to the hospital. I had a, I had a pain in my right leg. I couldn't bear weight on my right knee. And I told my, I get all my medical care from the VA. I told my wife, I got to have this looked at. And she took me to the VA hospital. And uh, what was causing my pain was not associated with either anomaly. There are two, one above my knee and one below my knee. And what was causing my pain was uh, what's called a Baker's cyst. It's just a benign cyst that grows underneath your patella, underneath your kneecap. And they're always benign, they're never cancerous. And uh, a couple of weeks they go away on their own and resolve. Um, but the x-ray technician saw these anomalies and uh, ended up, I think, took, I, I wasn't counting, but she had to take over 20 films of my knee. And she called the radiologist down, which is very unusual, because I know how it works. The, you know, the, the doctor in the ER, you know, makes a call uh, looking at the x-ray. Uh, and he might call the radiologist if it's something real unusual, but that's normally those films go into a stack and they're read by a radiologist who types up a radiology report a week later and uh, that confirms the doctor's diagnosis. Um, so he comes down and he looks at my x-rays and he says, you've got some interesting anomalies in your leg. He says, it looks like you've been in an accident or some kind of misadventure because you've got uh, a foreign structure that looks man-made. It's about the size of a fingernail with two wires attached to it uh, in your right leg. And I said, well, can you show me? 
Uh, and he, he, he did, he popped it on a light box and uh, you don't need an MD after your name to see it. It just looks like it doesn't belong in a human body. And uh, he said, yeah, you, you had to be in, in some kind of accident. And we got in this back and forth because he insisted I had to have a scar. I said, no, I don't have a scar. Um, and he said, well, you can't violate the integrity of the skin and put something that deep under your skin without there being a scar. Um, so I ended up taking my pants off again so I could look at my leg and there is no scar. And that seemed to shake him. And I said, well, doctor, let me ask you, how often is it that you find a foreign object like this underneath the skin and there not be a corresponding scar? And he said, never. He said, I've been a radiologist for 23 years. I've never seen this. I don't know how, I can't account for how this thing got in your leg. That's what he said. And then he showed me, um, he said, and then in your calf muscle, you have a collection of what looks like bone tissue. And he popped that up on the, on the light box. Uh, and it's like a floral formation of bones in the middle of my calf muscle. And uh, he said, uh, and those are on terrylovelace.com too. Um, he said, you know, normally a, uh, yeah, they're in the back of the book too. Yeah, I'm looking at it. <laughs> he said, you know, I, I've seen muscle occasionally, pardon me, I've seen bone tissue occasionally sprout in a muscle calcification somewhere. But he said, what's unusual, he says, I, I've never seen him take this symmetrical configuration and, you know, form a little flower in your knee. That's just really strange. Um, and curiously, he wrote a radiology report that said um, impression, uh, rule out uh, Baker cyst, uh, which was my diagnosis. Uh, uh, impression abnormal knee. And um, in his, the body of his report, he mentions these, he used the word anomalies above and below my knee and described them. And I had access to them through a portal called My Healthy Vet, which is if you're a veteran, you can go on, pull up your, your lab results, your x-ray reports, you know, as soon as they're as soon as they're done. So I saw this, I saw this radiology report, but I didn't print it out. I was out of toner. I, could, I didn't print it out. I didn't save it. I thought it'd always be there. A week later, it's gone, and there's a second report in its place, signed by a different radiologist. And uh, you know. If it's medical procedure that if you're going to write a separate report, it's got to it's got to indicate on it that it's a subsequent report. It's number two. It's not number one. There's a previous report you could look at because they're all relative in some way. Uh, but this didn't say that it was a second report. So I don't know what happened to the original radiology report. Evidently, it's gone. Um, did you ever think to confront the person who wrote the first report? I did. I did. And, uh, well, number one, he was very hard to reach. I think he knew my name. Uh, and he said, I saw you briefly in the emergency room and I wrote my report and uh, uh, that's it. And he says, I think that Dr. So-and-so, and he gave the name of the second doctor, uh, also participated in writing that report. And I said, well, there was an original report in your name only. 
And he says, no, 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 no. There were some notes taken, but I never wrote or signed a report. Well, that's just, that's just false. He did. He wrote and signed a report. So I ordered copies of my x-rays, which is my right. And, uh, and I felt like they were jerking me around. You know, we're about 90 days into this. And I'm like, hey, you know, what's, what's the deal here? I want my x-rays. I should be able to pull them up on, on my computer and I can't. Um, so I got mad and I went down there and I said, look, I, you know, all I need is $90 and a crayon and a piece of paper and I can sue you. And I will. I want my x-rays and I want them now. And that got me my x-rays, got me three films, just three. Uh, and I know they took in excess of 20. And I inquired about that. And they say, well, they're digital copies and we discard the ones that aren't, uh, that aren't uh, uh, the best quality. Is that, do you think that's true? Is that policy? I don't know. I, I don't know what their internal policy is regarding less than a perfect image. I imagine that somewhere in their regs, it says if you take a uh, if you take an X-ray and it has poor quality, there is no use uh, eating up the digital uh, memory, and you you can trash it. I'm sure there's got to be something like that. Otherwise, the system just would break down by the load of of films. But I just find it curious. As do I. Um, so. That was a catalyst. That was a pivotal moment. Yeah. When I saw those x-rays, that confirmed that these things had put their hands on me. And that just changed the game. It, it rekindled nightmares. And uh, um, it was the start of this. Yeah. So at what point between then and the writing of the book, did you were you like, I'm writing all this down. I don't know where it's going to take me, but I'm writing all this down. Like, what was the seed for putting pen to paper? Seeing the x-rays. That was it. The, the x-rays. I, I, I mean, I knew that I had interaction with non-human entities. Um, but the thought that they would implant something in my body, that was just really hard for me to accept. Um, yeah, I, uh, I saw something. I, I might have been on your Facebook page that really intrigued me. Somebody, it was either on your Facebook page or you had mentioned somebody mentioning it to you. I don't remember which, but somebody had suggested that maybe those are put there when you're still in utero. And maybe that's like that for a lot of people because there's never scars or hardly ever any scarring. Yeah. And I found that an interesting comment. I don't I wish I could cite it. I don't but I knew it had something to do with your Facebook. <laughs> That's about yeah, as, it, as close to citing it as I could I, I have heard that. And um I don't know, could be. Yeah. Sure I could find be. that interesting. Kind of like putting um I remember there was this movie about magicians where somebody cuts down a tree and there's something inside it and then they flash back to when the tree was young, they would put that object there and let the tree grow over it. And I thought that was an interesting, yeah, that's kind of how I envisioned it. Um, Cause then it would, it, it would also lends itself to this idea that you are a planned experimentation before you are you, you know? 
you know, I don't know if I mentioned it or not, but uh, when Toby and I drove down there, it really felt like we were keeping an appointment. I mean, I know that's a vague statement, but yeah. that's what yeah. I felt. I mean, that's the vibe. That's totally the vibe that you describe. Um, and, and you feel it when you read, at least I felt that when I was reading it. Uh, I felt like, wow, these guys are being led there and they have no idea what's waiting for them on the other side. Like, that's, that's the impression that I got. You describe it very well. Well, thank you. So I think that's right. Spot on. Um, so you came out with this one during the pandemic, part two. <laughs> which uh, you clarify some interesting things that that I found interesting. And one is you got a visitation from, was it Sue? So, yes. There, I call this entity my handler. Sue and Betty are one and the same. They're the same entity. I called her Betty out of jest, actually, because she wore this crazy black uh, wig that was styled like my sisters wore their hair in the 60s, only it was unkempt and all kinds of, and from a profile, she looked like Betty Rubble from the Flintstones. So that's where she got the name Betty from, but it was absolutely Sue. And so you're, you're planning to write this book. And at one point she shows up to your house and confronts you about it. October, 2017, yes. I woke up, I never sleepwalked a single day in my life. And I woke up in my living room and I opened my eyes and I'm, I'm shocked. I'm like, how did I get here? And I glance over the alarm set, you know, the cat's all chill on the, on the windowsill. Uh, but seated directly across from me is this woman that I didn't recognize at first. <coughs> Pardon me because she had this wig on and she had on these oversized uh, dark glasses. And uh, I turned the lamp on and the light wasn't great. And uh, she wore, she was in black. She had a red scarf tied around her neck that kind of hid the pencil thin nature of her neck. Um, and uh, a black blouse, black slacks and sturdy black nursing shoes with about a two inch heel, I guess to compensate for her height. And uh, my first thought was, I wish she'd take off those glasses. And she did, like it was on cue. And I immediately recognized her as Sue. And we were communicating telepathically and I didn't even think about it. Because my next thought was, my God, it's good to see you again. And, and it was. And I, uh, I've had other people tell me that they have a, an affection for their handler too. Uh, I mean, I don't mean in a romantic way, but kind of in a maternal way, you know, like you would have for uh, an aunt or, or something. Um, this was the same woman that was um, in the room when you were a child trying to move the, the shapes. Yes. Yeah. One yeah. yeah I, I guess if you know somebody, even even though they're wiping your memory, you would still have that connection with them. Because if you know them from basically your whole life, that you're seeing this person, maybe not as frequently, but relatively frequently, uh, like you would a teacher. Yes, yes. A teacher is a very good analogy. 
So she she's she asked you straight up not to write the book, right? She did. She told me I shouldn't write the book, that my government would not be happy with me. <laughs> and she also said it's probably not wise to speak about it. Too and late. <laughs> yeah, cats out of the bag. I don't care. You know, my feeling is the, the, the more I speak, the more I write, the more visible I am, the safer I am. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. And I think it's an important message. I mean, I'm not trying to convince anybody of anything. I just put my story out there, uh, you know, take it or leave it. But uh, this stuff is real. I find it interesting that they took the initiative to like sit you down in your own home. Um, you, you even alluded to it at one point in the book where uh, you're like, why can't they just talk to me in my own home? And finally, when they need you to not write a book, they do what you want. Right. I found that so interesting. Um, that is the action of somebody who is very concerned about what you have to say, what you have to remember. Um, and, and in writing, in storytelling in general, behavior is everything. In just that moment, the behavior, the, the, the shift in, in, in normality and the way they operate, that's not their MO. So their behavior is telling me that what you have to say, they don't want us to hear. Why? You know, why don't they want us to hear it? And it might be just one little bitty fraction of that story. You know, I've had that thought too. Maybe 99% of my story is fine. I mean, lots of people write books. What's the big deal? Yeah. You know, um, my guess is it was the uh, guys in the tan flight suits aboard this ship. I think that was the sensitive area. That's at the top of my list, bro. That's at the top of my list too. Uh, and one other thing about that moment that intrigues me and and I was going to ask if you anybody's ever sent you any illustrations of this thing is you talk about her giving you a memory of them taking you to a ship a large ship in orbit uh, on the other side of the moon and that there's a city on the moon and that and you're describing this large mushroom like structure and I was wondering if anybody ever sent uh, images of this thing because I know other people have brought up mushroom like structures that they can't get out of drew, their heads. One guy drew a picture of it, um, and I could find it, I have it somewhere. But one guy drew a picture of it, and it is just like a mushroom shaped water tower. Um, and probably a dozen people emailed me to say, I saw that object. I'm aware of that object. I had a similar experience. So I think it's there. I, I, I really think that on the other side of the moon, there's that, uh, I think it's a mining camp of some kind. Well, not of some kind, they were mining helium-3 for cold fusion. Um, I think they're also going to use it as a launch pad to uh, get to Mars. Well, I, uh, again, that's, I think that's why I was up all night with your books is, is, is these details that I'm like, I've heard of that mushroom building before. I don't, I don't remember where I'd heard it previously, but now I want pictures. I want people to submit more pictures and cause I think that's important. Um, and I do find it interesting too, that suddenly there's, 
this interest in dissolving the space station and going straight to Mars, uh, straight to the moon again. And then the and, Mars. Uh, then also like taking space command and, and, and the Pentagon space command was just recently spun off into space force, which I found interesting too. Uh, all the timing of this is really interesting. You know, I, uh, I think that I feel like I'm on, in, in, uh, on the Titanic, you know, in steerage, you know, three levels below decks. And, uh, you know, because the influential, the connected, the wealthy people, they're going to Mars. Yeah. Sooner than later. And uh, the rest of us are going to be left here. And I don't know what we're going to inherit. But... Volc volcanic activity? A mess. Yeah. yeah. Well, the poet can only warn, right? And, and man, you are a poet. Thank you. You are the definition, not only of a poet, but a great poet. And uh, again, I, I was up all night reading your first book. It messed me up <laughs> in, a good, in a good way. Um, I took my time with the second one, but the second one is a really good book too. And, and I really urge my listeners to, to get, pick up both of these uh, through Amazon or, or wherever. Uh, because the second one has other people's experiences and the correlation between your experiences, theirs, and the, 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 between all of those submissions, it's mind boggling. It's just like, how can you deny these people's experiences? I mean, the, the sisters, their lives, their relationship was ruined. Again, a correlation between you and Toby. Uh, yeah, the carnival. The, um, you know that that uh, 76 year old woman from Henderson, Nevada. Uh, one of the things she said to me was uh, she was uh, she found email to be cumbersome and asked if we could do this by phone. I'm sure. And I spoke with her and I was very impressed uh, that she was uh, very well spoken and obviously an educated woman. And uh, she said, uh, I hope, you know, a 76 year old woman isn't going to make up a fairy tale. And I thought, wow, that's that's so true. That's that's heavy. Yeah, I like that. It, it felt like a fairy tale, actually. It felt like it had a lot of the. The mythology, you know, two two young girls go into the woods and encounter magic, but it's it's not quite good, you know. It's interesting. I never looked at it that way. And a Hansel and Gretelish kind of. Yeah, I got a Hansel. Yeah, German German folklore. Um, I think that's why I've I, oh, over the years, ever since I, I I went back to school later in life to pursue my bachelor's degree, and I ended up studying literature, and and I took courses in folklore and fairy tales and science fiction, uh, a lot of independent studies, so I could read whatever I wanted, and yeah. I think that's the reason I got back into into this subject matter is because I'm starting to see dots connected between what the stories that were being told hundreds of years ago and now and it just seems like we're in this age where humans are experiencing the same thing they've always experienced and we don't know what it is or why but it's buried in our psyche somewhere isn't it? yeah you know i just look back look forward. Forward. i uh 
I took the time to get uh, qualified as a hypnotherapist. And I'm in the process of becoming certified. I got to do a few more regressions and I'll be certified. Um, but I, I intend to work with people and uh, see what I can maybe help recover through hypnosis. And I think that's going to be fodder for a third book. Yeah, I, I hope so. And and I think there needs to be somebody invested in doing stuff like that. Because um, uh, I, I don't know who's really doing that today that can keep they can keep the subject matter alive because i do feel like for to a certain extent it's fallen off a little bit you know with the passing of hopkins and, and of course mac uh and yeah. uh maybe you're, you're the third guy that has to take the wheel well there's you know there's javon smith in la who's been doing this for 30 years uh, and has amassed a whole lot of really cool information. And then, of course, there's Kathleen Martin in Florida, who is uh, Betty Hill's niece. And she is a certified hypnotherapist. Uh, one more question, and then I'll let you go, because I know we've been on for, for two hours now. Um, with everybody sending you their 2,000-plus uh, submissions of their own experiences, have you ever found any sort of so one of the x-ray, uh, one of the doctors who looked at an x-ray said that their technology evolves the same as ours. At one point, you got, a, you, you got your implant switched out for, some, for another one, and it was less noticeable. Uh, and I'll allude to that in the intro so we don't have to go into it. But have you ever felt like, based on all the experiences that are being sent to you, that there's an evolution in the way they do this? Because a lot of the uh, stories that I've heard where people think they're seeing a carnival or a Christmas store or a casino or whatever, I don't hear so much those kinds of stories now. It seems like that was the old way of getting people hooked. And, and a lot of the more modern stories seem to be more, oh, they just walk through the wall and into our rooms. Yes, I've heard that a lot. I went through the ceiling. Yes, that a lot. But you know what I think too? I, I, I think because they're getting better at what they do, that there are probably a whole heck of a lot of people walking around out there that don't have a clue. Don't have a clue. So that's another reason why I think this hypnotherapy thing is important. So, let's see. Well, uh, Thanks for taking the time to come on here. I really appreciate it. And uh, if you ever want a platform to just, hey, hey, come on and talk, I'm, I'm around. I love your work. I think you're a great writer and uh, you're doing some of the most important work of today. Thank you very much. I really appreciate that. Yeah. Sure. And I'll get, I'll get some cool images your way. Uh, and do me a favor, please, because I get distracted. If you don't have them by Monday, please send, send me a uh, uh, a polite or even less than polite email and say, Hey, where, where's my stuff? And sure, uh, sure. Uh, I will. I'll be polite. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Terry.